Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider. When you think of George Marshall, maybe you think of him as Army Chief of Staff, the adult in the war room corralling the likes of Eisenhower, Patton, and Montgomery to, war- to victory in World War II. Or perhaps you remember the Marshall Plan, his plan to use American economic resources to immunize Europe from communism. So, what are we doing on China Econ Talk talking about George Marshall? Well, the man from 1945 to 1947 was spent his time in China downing Baijiu with Mao and playing Chinese checkers with the Generalissimo, all in efforts to stave off civil war. Before there was the Marshall Plan, Marshall pushed Congress to approve a huge military and economic aid package to stave off conflict in China. So, was the loss of China to the CCP inevitable? Did Marshall in any way contribute to it? And what can we learn from Marshall's expedition to China about the limits of American influence abroad? This episode of in history of Marshall and China, which his Wikipedia page only lends five sentences, is the subject of Dan Kurtz Phelan's new 500-page book, The China Mission, George Marshall's Unfinished War, 1945 to 1947. Dan Kurtz Phelan is currently the executive editor of Foreign Affairs and previously was on Hillary Clinton's policy planning staff from 2010 to 2012. Dan, welcome to China Econ Talk. Thank you so much for having me. So how'd you stumble across this topic and why did you think narrative history was the right angle of approach? It's a, it's a great question. So Marshall, I, I worked in the policy planning staff, as you noted. The policy planning staff is a part of the Secretary of State's office that was created by George Marshall when he was Secretary of State in 1947. He wanted a, a strategy outfit in the State Department, which it, not, it did not have before. Because it was created by George Marshall, because the first thing policy planning did was forge the Marshall Plan, was create the plan that uh, helped save Europe is probably the most successful example of U.S. foreign policy making in our history, or, or arguably is. Marshall looms over that office and looms over everything you do. And we tell stories, there's kind of a myth we tell about that time that really focuses on the Marshall Plan, on the the creation of our alliances, on the creation of this model of American leadership in foreign policy that really sustained us through the Cold War and is still the template that we that we look to today. But we left out this part of his biography. And I wanted to go back and tell the story of what was really one of the most consequential decisions, one of the most consequential things that George Marshall did during this period, but that gets left out of the out of the the usual story, the kind of myth we tell. And to the on the narrative history point, you know, when you go from I'd, I'd worked as a journalist and editor outside of government and then went into government in 2009 for the first time. And one thing that I felt was that so much of the human element, the real decisions that are made by policymakers trying to face problems in real time with limited information and uh, all, of, all the kind of limitations that any human being facing a decision is, is affected by, so much of the texture of that is left out of some of the history that we tell. And so I wanted to create a narrative that uh, would really give you the feel of being there in the moment facing these decisions as the, the characters in history face them rather than kind of telling it deterministically as, as history often does. And what you get is this character who we think of as this kind of, you know, gray stoic figure facing what is probably one of the most consequential and hardest problems in the history of American foreign policy. And, and that's the story of the China mission. And it's interesting because a lot of a lot of these bureaucratic history books, it either runs two ways. Either we have these geniuses who consider everything and come to the right plan and it works out. Right. Or we have these bumbling idiots who screw up 
up and then there's a war or a catastrophe. But here and in your book, we have Marshall who really knows his stuff, but at the same time isn't able to solve this problem and the forces are just too big for him to get his hands around even with all of the backing and might and popularity that he came into this with this mission. That's right. It's sort of a story of a of a of a great man of this can-do figure accepting what he what he couldn't do, what he couldn't achieve and trying to reckon with the consequences of that. And just going back to the the why of this book, you know, so much of what we do in in foreign policy is managing impossible problems and failure. And that gets left out of the history sometimes. And so I wanted to tell a story of someone who I do think is a great a great figure, a great strategist and 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 uh, um, diplomat uh, taking on something that he couldn't do. Yeah, it's interesting because this also sort of feeds into this classic classic China arc, uh, which was probably captured most um, most eloquently in uh, Jonathan Spence's "To Change China," where basically uh, Jonathan Spence is more eloquent than almost anyone. So I will I will take that. Where basically the idea is a white guy shows up. Uh, shows up to to China and the hopes uh, with these high hopes of reshaping the country and his image and ends up leaving disappointed and chastened. So Marshall, again, who had probably more power than any other foreigner over China in the history of China, um, ends up kind of running into this same running into this same wall and these same limitations. So I'm curious if any thoughts on that or other um, books or narratives that really um, helped you formulate what you wanted this book to look like. To, to Change China is an absolutely spectacular book. I think it's one of uh, Jonathan Spence's early works and is really worth going going back to. The, the kind of arc you describe, I think, is you see it at so many points in the history of the U.S. interaction with China, going back to the 19th century and extending through the present. And the, the kind of cycle, as I see it, is one that uh, Marshall lived through in 1946 and 47, and we're really living through now at, uh, in, 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 a, in a somewhat analogous way. So for Marshall, you know, he gets there, he kind of projects his hopes about how China will change, what he's, what, what he's likely to accomplish there in the first phase. In, in the second phase, he uh, resists changing, giving up those hopes, kind of clings to this wishful thinking and gives them up only very, very reluctantly. And then the third phase, which is the kind of who lost China phase in the history there's this furor of charges of betrayal and recrimination that consume the American political scene and body politic for, for much longer. And we're, we're in a kind of similar moment now where there were these hopes about what the first phase of American engagement with China after Nixon's opening in, in, in uh, almost 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago, almost 40 years ago, uh, what that was likely to achieve. And then this kind of moment now where we're wondering why the relationship did not develop in the way a lot of people hoped it did at the time. Yeah, it's interesting because another theme of this book, which we'll get into, is the is the arc not just with the elites but with public opinion and the and the uh, you know as time goes on, folks get less and less sanguine about Chang, about involvement in China, about hopes for hopes for its future. So um, before we get too far into that, let's bring us back to 1945. So what was the state of affairs um, after Japan surrenders, and uh, what were all these American troops doing in China? It's a fascinating history. So let, let me let me actually start with who Marshall is, because I think we uh, he's someone that we all come across in history books as this kind of great figure of, of this period, this kind of figurehead of the greatest generation or the, or the wise men. But but you know at this moment he really is at the end of World War II he really is the kind of one of the towering figures in in the world. Really, he's not not just in the United States. He's been Army Chief of Staff for six years. 
Uh, he, he started that job the morning or same day that Hitler invaded Poland. So he's really seen the entire course of World War II. And after U.S. involvement started, he's uh, been one of the key figures shaping American involvement in the war and shaping uh, allied victory. Churchill famously called him the organizer of victory. He is has this incredible public profile. There's a draft marshal movement trying to persuade him to run for president. Harry Truman calls him one of the greatest military leaders that ever lived. You read these accounts of uh, the kind of great figures of the time just going into raptures when they talk about him. But Marshall at this moment is he's over it. Is exhausted. He wants, right? to, he wants yeah. to ride into the Leesburg, Virginia it's, sunset. Exactly, exactly. Play some croquet. Uh, that, 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 that's exactly right. He's, he's about to turn 65 years old. He's had this very intense six years. His wife, Catherine Marshall, uh, really wants him to retire. She has vacations planned for them. And there's this moment the day after his retirement ceremony in the courtyard of the Pentagon, which is a very new building at that point, they ride to Leesburg, Virginia, an hour or so outside of Washington. Marshall uh, stands, looks across his lawn, thinks about retirement, which, which has just begun, walks into his house. And then really within minutes, the, the phone rings in, in his house. And it turns out it's the president on the line just asking him this one last little favor is what he thinks will just take a couple of months and and then Marshall can really retire. Now, for Truman, as he looks at China at this moment, it's really this this problem that threatens to upend his whole vision of what the post-war is supposed to look like. China is meant to be one of the big four powers that, along with the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union, is going to help keep the peace in the post-war. So there are these these four policemen, uh, all founding members of the of the UN Security Council, permanent members, who are together going to make sure we don't get back into another terrible war. That is how the post-war is supposed to look. There are not going to be spheres of influence. There are not going to be major geopolitical tensions anymore. There's going to be this cooperative approach to peace. The, the problem is China does not really look like a modern great power. It does not. It's not democratizing in the way that we had imagined. Uh, John Guy Shek and the nationalist government there are very slowly reestablishing control over the Chinese mainland, which has been occupied very brutally by the Japanese for a long time, and they're being challenged by Mao and the communists, who have their headquarters in in northwest China and Yan'an, but are are threatening uh, nationalist control. Yeah, there are these great stories of uh, FDR going to Churchill saying, "Hey, we want to bring Chiang Kai-shek into the mix. Let him come to these meetings." And Churchill's like, "Are you kidding me? Right, like, right. what are these guys doing here?" And, and, and Stalin actually. I mean, it's yeah. it's kind of remarkable how hard the U.S. fought to bring China into, into uh, that inner circle, never completely to the uh, in- incredible frustration of, of the nationalists and, and Chiang Kai-shek, but they, um, uh, they really wanted China to be one of the great powers. Sure. Yeah, I remember in negotiating the, the UN Charter and, and other important post-World War II documents, you'd have these stories of the Americans not wanting to offend the Chinese, so they would set the meeting times for four o'clock um, with, the, with the UK and with the Soviet Union and then tell the Chinese, oh, you know, we're just starting at 6.30 right, or whatever. Right. And then they would come and be just like, oh, you're late. What, did you get the message? Like, what's the problem here? Right. Because the British and the Soviets were so frustrated with these nobodies who are fighting this uh, civil war who, you know, need the America to fly troops over the uh, Himalayas just right. to get them any guns. The, the idea that they should have a, a say in all this stuff is kind of an insult to the other the other two powers. Right, and they, and they never they never trusted them. They never thought they, they could keep secrets. So in, in what was a as a great offense in, in nationalist eyes, they never knew about 
the secret agreements at Yalta, which allowed Soviet troops to go into Manchuria in exchange for certain uh, certain economic concessions, mostly because no one thought that the, uh, the, the Chinese nationalist government would manage to keep it secret. Sure. So, okay, great. Bringing us up to 1945. So the war ends and the Soviets are in Manchuria because Truman was scared that even after dropping the bomb, the war would continue for another year and this would cost hundreds of thousands of American lives. So wanted to kind of share that that kind of finishing it out burden with um, with the Soviet Union. Right, right. But this means that the post-war situation in China is much more complicated than it, than it may have otherwise been. Right. So you have Soviet troops, about 300,000 Soviet troops in Manchuria at that point. You have roughly 100,000 American troops who are throughout China. Some of them have landed after the war and are holding positions along the coastline. Others have been there uh, supporting the Chinese through the war against Japan. But you, you, so you have these two outside powers with the troop presence, and then you have the nationalists, you have the communists. Uh, the nationalists seem to have a great military advantage, but it's, it's, it's uh, kind of eroding by the day. And then you have this whole array of other forces uh, in China who, are, who have kind of shifting alliances and sometimes sort of uh, unclear alliances. So it's an incredibly confused situation. Sure. You have this great line, this this great citation in the book about how the army manual they would give to the private showing up told them to show the Chinese that we respect them as human beings, which is never a good sign when you need right. to tell people that. But, um, you know, clearly a lot of um, a lot of tension, which was going to, you know, creep up later in this story. So let's come back now to Marshall. So he shows up, uh, he shows up in, in Chongqing and is is tasked with keeping uh, keeping these two sides from breaking out into into full civil war. So, what were his aims and what was his strategy to bring the two sides together? So Truman gives what he what he thinks will just be this kind of two month project to Marshall. Go to go to Chongqing, which has been the wartime capital of China since uh, since the, the the late 1930s. It's where uh, the nationalist government has had its seat, and it's full of American diplomats and journalists and officers and spies. From, from the United States and, and a whole range of other countries. Uh, Truman says, go to Chongqing, broker a peace agreement between the nationals and communists, make sure that the full-scale civil war does not, does not break out and consume China again. Uh, make sure in the course of that that the communists are not going to uh, take power, are not going to win this civil war. Um, at the same time, lay the groundwork for a, a Chinese democracy, help China become the democratic great power that we, we imagine it, it can and should be. And Truman says, look, that's just going to take you, you know, two or three months. It, of course, doesn't work out. Marshall ends up staying in China for, for, for 13 months. And it also starts this whole new phase of his career, which takes him to become Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense later on. But there's this kind of comical moment where Truman, really feeling bad that he's imposing on Marshall the day after his retirement, says, look, it's going to be two months and then you're, you're going to go back to uh, uh, your, the, the retirement you've planned. So Mar- Marshall gets to Chongqing in December 1945, and to the sort of um, bewilderment of people there, for the first few weeks, he just listens. They expect, you know, this kind of great figure to to uh, come out of his plane and suddenly start making pronouncements about what the Chinese should do and what the United States is going to do. And instead, he says very, very little for these first these first couple of weeks, and he invites figures from all sides of this and from all walks of life to come and just talk to them about what they want and how they see the situation. Some of them are communists, some of them are nationalists. He asks questions, but he doesn't express a lot about what what he sees. And it's only after he's been there for a few weeks that he starts to really move. Yeah, it's an interesting contrast between him and Eisenhower in Japan, right? I mean, there's John Dower, Embracing Defeat, another fantastic book, where he basically shows up in China and maybe does like 
three days of this and all of a sudden starts oh, re- re- MacArthur, MacArthur right, right, and, and right. all of a sudden starts rewriting the constitution, right. you know, reshaping the, the entire country based on his, his vision, which, you know, turned out okay. But it was clearly uh, both a different status. I mean, George Marshall wasn't riding in with a conquering army to China, right. but right. also a different mindset and a different idea of looking at problems and trying to solve them. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the MacArthur comparison comes up a lot and it's a really interesting one. The, the difference, as you point out, is that in, in Japan, the United States really was a conquering army that had full control and an ability to kind of impose solutions on, on the Japanese. In China, Marshall was there at the invitation of a you know part, partner government, yeah, um, and trying to uh, in a in a slightly different role mediate an end to this dispute while still uh, not being a neutral uh, you know neutral mediator in any sense. It's interesting though because even after all that listening, it does seem like a lot of the solutions that Marshall comes to are sort of based off based very directly off the american experience so he talks about you know a bicameral legislature and you know democracy and liberalization and open markets and whatnot and so you know even after all of that um all of that thinking and he actually spent a number of years in china in the 1920s as you write about so it's it's funny that that not not to not to put a value judgment on whether america america the american uh structure is the is the answer for all the world's problems or not but he still ends up kind of coming to that conclusion. That's right. It's it's a it's a really extraordinary moment. So in the in when Marshall does start get really getting into the diplomacy, he has amazing success. Actually, it's kind of miraculous success in his first weeks of really trying to come up with some solution. He gets a ceasefire between the two armies. He gets this agreement to merge the communist nationalist forces. A pretty detailed agreement, actually, where they talked about you know. Uh, how in this region there'll be uh, 10 times as many nationalist troops in each division as communist troops. Um, and then he gets this agreement to uh, start building a, a, a Chinese democracy. And you know, Marshall's a pretty hard-headed guy. He did not invent this mission, but you see him getting kind of swept up in this uh, uh, democratizing fervor in a way where he talks about um, you know, the American model of freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. And he starts talking, he makes analogies to baseball. He at one point comes across, he's a voracious reader. Uh, he comes across this volume of speeches by Benjamin Franklin that has been printed for American troops. And he decides to have it translated for the Chinese. And there are these moments, sort of cringeworthy moments sure, where you see not? him reading <laughs> Benjamin Franklin to, you know, communist interlocutors. And, uh, and, and, you know, it feels a little bit like the early days of the, um, of the Iraq war, you know, it feels very, very familiar in certain ways. Uh, sorry, go ahead. What's funny is how the Chinese also play this game with him, right? So, you know, this is something where you have, uh, Zhou Enlai quoting, you know, or or Mao saying, you know, we love Washington. We want to turn into, uh, we want to be that type of person for him. So, so it's not like there are these are passive players in the game. They no, understand right. what his mentality is and are trying to get the best uh, negotiate, you know, the, right. get the best offer for their side and understand that his vision is this American vision and his reference points are these American reference That's points. Right. So they'll read. They'll Sure. Fine. We'll read Benjamin Franklin. We'll quote it back to you. That's right. And this is a game they've been playing for a very long time where both the nationalists and communists have been trying to uh, portray to Americans they meet uh, long before Marshall. Uh, this image of themselves as very much in the in the kind of tradition of American republicanism. So you get communists talking about how they're um, really just agrarian Democrats. And, you know, you get all these young American foreign service officers who are very sophisticated and know China very well and in many cases grew up there and have, have lived in China for decades saying, oh, these guys are just like Je- Jeffersonian Republicans. They're not real communists. And, and uh, on, on the nationalist side, 
all these figures who who went to you know American American colleges and have a lot of experience. Madam in the US. Ching, Wesley University right. graduate. Um, there, there's a line from T- Teddy White, who's a famous uh, Time Magazine reporter, who wrote a great book called Thunder Out of China. Uh, towards the end of this story, uh, was there as a reporter during the war and formed a Harvard Club of China in Chongqing, and uh, joked afterwards that half of the of the nationalist government could have could have joined because they were all Harvard graduates, which was not actually true, but it was kind of the image that uh, they like to, to give to Americans. Christian also, many of them, which many, is an many interesting, interesting right. wrinkle of this. And, th- and there was this, of course, very long missionary tradition in the sense that uh, China was to become this great Christian power and the fact that uh, the General Lissimo and, and, and Madame Zhang were both uh, themselves Christians really helped support that uh, that image. So Zhou Enlai has this great line where he says, when he's trying to flatter someone, Gongwei, I think is the word, um, you know, you're really starting to understand China, which I think is a line I have had someone use personally on me. That's right. And, and the whole the whole game uh, between the nationalists and the communists of of really, it's and it really is wooing, uh, wooing Marshall and right. wooing Marshall's wife even right. um, to, to make sure that they sort of got the best deal. So let's come back to American public opinion at the time. And this is something I came out of reading your book a little confused about. Because on the one hand, you have um, Ernest May saying that in 1945, there was a huge um, a, a huge groundswell of support for a really aggressive intervention in China and putting troops on the ground and making sure that chain come out on top. But on the other hand, you have a, another, uh, another set of sort of documentary evidence of folks saying, what the hell are these American troops doing here? The war's over. Let's get everyone home. So what was it at the time? Because I think the crucial decision in this whole story is Marshall not showing up 1945, deciding not to wholeheartedly back Chang and let in, you know, join him in this war to finish the communists that see, whose army seemed like it was on its last legs, but giving them this truce and this time to regroup, prove their worth to Stalin and ultimately gain his support and backing, which led to them having a, having a fighting chance when the civil war came around. So it, it, it's it's a really complicated question, and it changes over the course of, of you know, the period I cover in the book, not just from 1945 to 1947, but then uh, moving forward to 1949 when the, the People's Republic is, is finally established, when sure. that really wins decisively. And at the beginning, there is on the one hand this kind of um, emotional support for China. People believe that uh, China is going to become this democratic great power. That had been the kind of line that was that was uh, used throughout throughout World War II as part of what justified American support for China during the war. But at the same time, Americans really are ready to focus on their own problems for a while. You know, we we think of this time as a moment when America kind of stepped forward to lead the world. But the impulse by most Americans right after World War II was to bring the troops home. 400,000 Americans had just died in World War II. A tremendous amount of money had been spent on the rest of the world. And there were economic problems at home as a result of the the end of the war. And there was inflation and there were strikes. So there was this really strong impulse to not sacrifice too much for the world's problems at this time. It's something that Marshall had been really worried about when he was Army Chief of Staff, worried about what that kind of isolationist impulse would mean after the war. So there was on the one hand this, on a certain level, support for the nationalist Chinese. People thought that they were a cause worth backing on some level, but also a desire not to not to have to do too much, not to have to send... Uh, more troops there for too long. And in, in, in the incidents over the course of Marshall's China mission, when uh, American troops got killed, or there were kind of in, in, incidents that started to arise between the, the US troops and the, the communists, for the most part, um, you'd have people in the United States say, why the hell is my son 
out there fighting for this other government. He's been there, you know, he's been been at, at war for years and years. I don't want him to get killed in this complicated civil war. So it's you have these very contradictory impulses. What what really changes over the course of the story is that the Cold War starts. So, you know, in 1945, there still really is this sense, there's a fear of communism at the time, but there still is this sense that there could be this um, this great power piece, that they're going to be the four powers managing the world jointly. And over the course of, of, of these four years, especially, uh, all of a sudden that looks totally fanciful. So by, you know, 1947, 1948, you really have uh, Cold War tensions rising in a way that make people see the conflict of China in very different terms. And that's when the kind of debate about how much to intervene to support the nationalists r- really gets prominent. There, there's an amazing moment that I find just a kind of eerie historical coincidence when Marshall goes to visit Mao because he has this period of, of seeming success when he seems to have kind of brokered the ceasefire and laid out this vision for a, um, a democratizing modern China, unified China. He goes on this kind of victory tour around around the country and visits all these places that have been at war for decades and announces the new peace. And he's he's know, hailed as the war of warlords and first war, you know, right. first warlord of the world. I mean, it's it, his reception is really remarkable. It's amazing. And he's, you know, he's greeted by families and there are school groups that sing to him. And in the kind of culminating moment of this, he goes and he meets with Mao in, in, in Yunnan and has this kind of extraordinary 24 hour visit with in the, you know, the communist capital. And as he's meeting with Mao and they're talking about how much uh, the Chinese can learn from the United States and this kind of future of friendship and peace, at that very same moment, the communists are also watching very carefully a tour around the United States that Winston Churchill is is making. And on the same day that, that Marshall and Mao are having this meeting and talking about friendship, Winston Churchill is in Fulton, Missouri, talking about the Iron Curtain that's descending between the United States and, and the Soviet Union or the West and the communist world. And and the communists at this moment, as they start to see the growing international tensions, they say, you know what, the, the, there's a very different future coming. There's a, there's a future of tension and competition between the Soviets and the United States. And that means something very different for the domestic conflict of China. And of course, the nationalists see the same thing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this was the big fear that Marshall was thinking about throughout this process is we don't want Americans have fighting a proxy war with the Soviets, which ironically they end up doing four years later right. Um, right. In, in Korea. So so the big question is whether or not a bigger commitment at this time would have staved off the Korean War, the Vietnam War, right. and, and having a, a, a strong ally in China. So, okay, so we have Marshall. He gets everyone together. He signs this plan. They're integrating the armies. There is a primary school for the for the nationalists to kind of all learn democracy and, and work together with right. the— For with the, com- the-, the communists to learn, to learn how to be a— the uh, uh, modern troops. Yeah, they're they're actually going to be American officers training communist soldiers. It's, yeah, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, which I mean, you know, has plenty of contemporary echoes in in Pakistan and Afghanistan That's right. and, and That's Iraq right. and yeah. Syria, um, which we'll which we'll get to soon. But let's come back to Marshall flying home triumphantly and now having to persuade Congress that this is a deal we w- we should support. So what were the dynamics there? On the one hand, we have Truman, who although a down home senator from Missouri who never had a college degree, is sort of the globalist's globalist in this whole uh, in this whole moment and and really wants wants to give this peace backing the the support he thinks it needs. But senators, and as you said, public opinion, were really against it. So what did Marshall do in particular to try to make this happen? So Mar- Marshall has has brokered this agreement. He sees the kind of outline of a new, a new China, a new Chinese government. But he believes that 
in order to make it work, it's going to take a lot of American assistance. It's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take advisors. And part of that is in making the kind of mechanics of a new government work. But he's also really starting to focus on the needs of individual people and how you keep people fed, how you get people jobs, how you make sure that inflation doesn't skyrocket and get out of control. This is a lot of what he starts to talk about in the context of the Marshall Plan in Europe a couple of years later. But he's really starting to see the importance of those factors in China. And he realizes that if this new vision is really going to take hold, it's going to take a ton of support from the United States to make it happen. Sure. But he's hearing from his contacts back in Washington, from President Truman, from uh, people in the State Department, that Congress is not in a very generous mood, that he's it, it's going to be really hard to get the kind of uh, financial commitment that he thinks is necessary. And so shortly after he visits Mao, when he thinks he has the uh, agreements basically finalized, you know, there are a few little details that still need to be, be worked out. He gets on a plane and flies back to Washington to lobby Congress to put together what is really sort of a Marshall Plan for China. Sure. Um, and he spends about a month back in Washington just having these kind of very intensive meetings with— Too busy for Churchill, apparently. That's right. Who was he, in town at the time. That's right. He was he missed his his uh, goddaughter's baptism and had to cancel on Churchill, which is an indication about how how hard he was working. He said, "I'm working harder here than I was during the war," which is probably not quite true, but it does give some indication uh, that that he was. But he then was again, he famously, her. you know, would leave the office at four o'clock and like play a round of golf every day. Right? That's so, right. He he would go riding. He had riding. he had had these um, collapses from nervous exhaustion when he was younger, and so he was very disciplined about kind of. Uh, stopping work and, and getting rest and recreation, which did not mean he didn't work hard. It just meant that he he had this uh, kind of discipline when it came to stopping at a certain point. So maybe Chinese tech CEOs could learn from the Marshall uh, the Marshall method and and not working seven he, he, days. I mean, a week. Uh, someone else should write a book, um, or I, I would probably make more money if I wrote a book about uh, oh, oh, the- you know mar- the mar- Marshall's <laughs> management secrets. Um, he really is a kind of just amazing uh, leader and manager. Um, both during the war and during the China mission and later. For sure, yeah. Putting 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 uh, Lincoln to shame, right? Lincoln, Lincoln, I think, was much that's more right, stressed, that's than, right. uh, stressed than him in this regard. You know? Yeah, exactly. So when he's doing this negotiation with Congress, we have a lot of interesting echoes to contemporary thoughts about the importance or lack thereof for U.S. spending on foreign policy. One congressman you quote saying that Marshall would spend America's dwindling resources to give other countries a degree of prosperity we haven't achieved at home, which, you know, given the, you know, 30 straight years of, of wartime that, that China has been in, more or less, is a pretty absurd statement. But at the same time, you know, it gives a real, gives a real sense of flavor of what was right. going on. Um, was going on in Capitol Hill at this time. And, and sorry, let me add one one detail. That I, one one thing I did is I went back and looked at the newspapers from the period, just to in in part to look at what they were saying about Marshall, but also what they were saying about these kind of questions more generally. And there was this um, controversy that was covered in the Chicago Tribune about a whiskey shortage in the Midwest. And there was a point when they were blaming shipments of grain to starving populations elsewhere for a whiskey shortage, which uh, damn right. just gave some some some, <laughs> some some flavor of the politics at the time. Well, you know, it's there, there's your there's your echo right. Now, I mean, we have we have the trade war and we have whiskey right. whiskey tariffs. That's right. Um, That's right. You know, we go from seventeen, you know, seventeen eighty nine or whatever whiskey. We have the whiskey rebellion. We have that's right. We have whiskey fights nineteen forty six. We have China um, raising the price on my black label and and there's there's China. probably a book here as well. <laughs> okay, so so. So, but at the same time, it seems that this engagement strategy is losing um, is losing a 
is losing its power. As China, as Marshall leaves the country, everything seems to fall apart. So what were the factors that were ripping apart the two sides at this point? Because at one point, they seemed pretty, um, pretty convincingly committed to giving this engagement strategy a shot. Right. Mar- Marshall, I mean, the, the, one, one indication of how far along he thinks he is, as he's flying back to Washington, he stops in Los Angeles and meets with Frank Capra, the director who's about to start directing a movie called It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, which which is, of course, very famous now. Marshall uh, sits down with Frank Capra, and they talk about making a series of instructional videos in Chinese for Chinese audiences to learn how democracy works. And this, this, this is how, uh, how the, the kind of detail here, the kind of thought he's giving to uh, this project of instilling democratic values in the Chinese. Um, but but as he's away, things shout do. out by the way for the Frank on YouTube right now. You can watch these great Frank Capra like what is democracy? What are the Japanese like? Who are we fighting? Fantastic stuff if you want to kill a few hours on. Uh, it, well, it was an Academy Award winning uh, film that he had done during the war for Marshall. So they Why worked together fight, during right? World War II called Why We Fight. Um, so Marshall thought he could. Uh, do a version of that in Chinese for Chinese audiences to make the post war. Because, of course, Frank Capra, you know, really knows his audience. Exactly. Right? You exactly. Know, on, on a little tangent for you. Right now, the big trend in, in Chinese and in- in Chinese box office returns is the Hollywood directed stuff is losing out to domestic, Mm -hmm. um, to domestic movies. And, and there's this, there's, there's, there's been this, um, turning point, it seems where, where cheap Chinese stuff, um, you know, relatively affordable Chinese movies are, are beating, um, you know, are beating like venom, uh, because it's like a love story directed by a Chinese, a Chinese director with a Chinese script that like reson resonates and is present or whatever. So yeah, Frank Capra, Frank Capra. probably not, probably Capra. not the right. guy to teach China right, democracy. Right, right. Ex- but. Exactly. Um, so, so, so Mar- Marshall's gone. He's trying to f- talking to Frank Capra. He's talking to Congress, trying to put together this enormous assistance package for, for the new China that, that, that is coming into shape. He thinks, and as he's there, things really start coming apart. So there are all these, there are these agreements that he's made, political agreements, military agreements between the two sides that start to unravel. And it's, in part, it's because um, there are details that are not really worked out. They both, uh, in part because of the pressure that he's put on them, uh, agreed at a, at a high level. But once it gets into some of the details, they start to backtrack a little bit. But what also starts to happen is that the Cold War tensions really, uh, really are coming to the surface during this period. You have Churchill's speech. Stalin gave a very famous speech in Moscow uh, in February, talking a, a much more kind of um, uh, much more assertive militaristic speech about Soviet policy. George Kennan, who was a young, uh, young diplomat in Moscow at the time. A youngish diplomat in Moscow at the time wrote what became known as the Long Telegram, talking about the Cold War world coming to shape. So decision makers everywhere kind of see these tensions really coming to the surface, and you know historians date the beginning of the Cold War differently, but this is one of the moments that is seen as as uh, as as the beginning. And um, and, at, and, at, and at, this plays out then with um, with Mao and and, and Zhang Jiexue and Chiang Kai Shek because they see that their the cards they have at their disposal are stronger. Mao becomes right. more confident that Stalin's going to back him. Chiang gets more confident that the the U.S. in the end of the day is going to give him the resources he needs to win a to win a war. That's right. So Stalin has been telling Mao through the fir- the first stretch of Marshall's mission. Look, you've got to you've got to cooperate with Marshall. There's no chance that you're going to win a civil war. We're not going to do that much to help you. So Mao is feeling pressure from his ideological brethren and outside patron to negotiate. Uh, and of course, Marshall is telling the nationals that they have to negotiate. But as as these tensions come to the surface, they say, 
you know, Stalin starts to give a, a different message to Mao. The Soviets are no longer quite so confident that a, a U.S. presence in China is going to be okay for them. So Mao starts to think he can really fight it out and that'll have Soviet support. And and similarly, the nationalists look at the, the rising tensions and say, no matter what Marshall's telling us, we're ultimately going to have the backing of the United States. And there's the Republicans one, are going to win. Right. We, we've got McCarthyism on the rise. Right. You know, no one likes pinkos. And why would they, you know, here we are literally killing communists. Like, what more could you ask? That's for, right. right? And, and, and you see these messages that the nationalists are getting from contacts in Washington or from their embassy in Washington are saying, this, this is the new world. Anti-communism is going to become the most important force in American politics. So just all you have to do is wait out Marshall and it's going to be fine. There's one very important detail, also kind of an amazing, uh, amazing little slice of history. John, Marshall, before he goes, has these conversations with Truman in the White House where he talks about what he what he's going to do when he gets to China. And Marshall says, OK, I understand that I'm supposed to tell both sides they have to negotiate and they'll only get our support if, if they negotiate. And if they don't, then then we won't back them. And he says, well, what, what should I do if the nationalists don't don't play along? You know, we're, we've been their, their backer for a long time. Like, are we really going to withdraw support? And Truman says, look, well, we don't need to worry about plan B. You'll figure it out once you're there. But Marshall, because he thinks in this way, says, no, I really want to know what I do if, if the nationalists don't cooperate. And Truman says, look, ultimately, we're probably going to have to back them to some degree. We're not going to withdraw support entirely. This is supposed to be a secret conversation, but that detail leaks to to Chiang Kai-shek that makes its way back to Chongqing. And so Zhang says, look, I know that I, I should play along with Marshall, but ultimately I, I know what, what the president said and I know that we're going to have American backing. And the crucial intelligence failure, lack of understanding that the Americans had was at this time, at this early period, 1945-46, Stalin was not committed. Stalin was telling Mao, slow down, um, put on the brakes here. And and at the end of the day, his thinking as it you know has come out in archives of uh, 45 years later, was that he wasn't ready to go to the mat for for China in the way that he was with um, a lot of countries in the Eastern Bloc. Right. I mean, there was no, um, you know, napkin agreement that that Churchill had with uh, with Stalin kind of carving up uh, China in the way that they did with with Greece and, and, and Poland and, and Hungary. But at the same time, he was not he was not in the mindset where where it seems like looking ba- looking back with 2020 hindsight there was this window where if Chiang Kai-shek really put on the gas in these first few months he could have done away with a lot of the threat that the that the communists ended up opposing to to him and his government well, that, that 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 is the kind of you know interesting counterfactual question stalin at this point sees the the communists who he you know stalin is a uh, in, in traditional Marxist thought, the the Chinese communists didn't really look like revolutionaries. This is, they're not supposed to be these, um, you know, cave Marxists, as as, uh, as Stalin called them. You know, they were kind of agricultural. It was rural. That's not what revolutions were supposed to look like, according to the theory. So he looked at Mao and said, "You're you're not you're like I don't trust you ideologically. You don't look like a real communist to me. I don't think you can win." And so he really sees them as a way to get concessions out of the nationalists to make sure that Soviet interests are protected in the new China. So things are falling apart. We're we're fighting in Manchukuo or or. Yeah, we're fighting him in Manchuria, former Manchukuo, yeah. and uh, we have worse and worse relations between the the Chinese and the uh, between the two uh, Chinese parties. We have American, uh, we have an army base named the Temple of One Thousand Sleeping Colonels. We have American troops driving too fast and getting in car crashes, which is also something you heard in, in Iraq and Afghanistan right, right. pretty frequently. Um, but Truman, so Truman at some point says, "Marshall, you got to give this one more shot. Fly back there, see what you can do." And even though he, according to his wife. 
manfully struggles. Um, ultimately, it's to no avail. Right. So Ching Hai-shek, he has this great line trying to explain why this whole thing is falling apart. And he says that trying to negotiate with the CCP is like trying to catch a fish in a tree. Um, but I'm curious if you could sort of walk us through this period of of Marshall's final push to see if he could salvage something from what seemed so promising only a few months earlier. Right. So Mar- Marshall's in, back in Washington in the spring of 1946, putting together this this economic assistance package, this $500, $500 million assistance package, which is an enormous amount of money at the, uh, at the time, still a lot by the standards of American assistance. And, and Marshall keeps hearing from people on the other side of Pacific that things are coming apart and he really needs to come back and put them back together. So finally, at the end of April, he goes back, he brings Catherine Marshall, his wife, to, to be with him for the remaining months and tries to repeat what he had done in this fir- the first part of his mission. He'd put together these agreements and he thinks with just a little work, he can put them back together. But it turns out the forces of, of dissolution, both from within the two sides in China, but also internationally as the Cold War tensions really start to arise, just just become too much for him. So it's this really grueling period where you watch him struggling manfully, as Catherine Marshall said, uh, trying to broker agreements and putting out public statements and putting pressure on both sides, trying to do whatever he can to get back to the place where they'd been early on in the mission and at every at every stage failing to do so. Dean Acheson, who was, was back in Washington as the uh, Undersecretary of State and would later become Marshall, Marshall's deputy, kept saying that he's like like Sisyphus in China, uh, just kind of rolling rolling the boulder up the hill over and over and over again. Can you tell the story quickly of his last hurrah, his idea that he was going to make an exit so grand and shocking that it would uh, shock the players back to the negotiating yeah, table? Yeah, so, so, so Marshall, um, at, at a certain point, you know, Truman is watching Marshall from Washington and decides that he wants to make Marshall a secretary of state. This is, you know, Marshall as a diplomat and, and statesman rather than Marshall as as military man. And so Truman sends Dwight Eisenhower over in in uh, the spring of 1946 to make this request to Marshall. And Marshall says, well, first, let me let me finish up my mission here. You know, the president's willing to let him come home. But Marshall thinks he needs to do everything he possibly can to to try to stave off a full scale civil war in, between the communists and nationals in China. Marshall tries and tries and tries. There's an amazing moment when he even surprises Joe and Lai by by hiding behind a screen in a living room <laughs> to try to get him back to talk. So he just does everything which, he which can. Which I am sure is an idea he got from reading some like popular literature, exactly. Chinese, uh, you know, Chinese like American writing some right, Chinese right. style fiction. Um, it's this the kind of uh, you know almost comical moment where he has another general invite Joe over for lunch and then uh, comes out from 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 behind the screen so he can talk to him. Um, but he, he he goes through all these steps and, and, t- and towards the end he decides, look, I'm not going to be able to broker this agreement between the national and communists. There's no chance of of really coming to um, uh, the the kind of agreement, realizing the kind of vision of a, of a new China that. I thought was possible early on, but I do think I can persuade the nationalists to um, start reforming and handling military strategy and economic policy uh, in a way that we think will be more sustainable and more likely to make American support pay off in in terms of success. So in in his final months, that's really his focus. How do you lay the groundwork for 
uh, nationalist government that that will be sustainable. The problem is that he, the, what he thinks is necessary and what uh, John Kaishak and, and other key nationalists think, think is necessary is totally different. So sure. he's kind of um, try, trying to persuade them to change. And in, in his final final moment, he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. I'm going to take the Secretary of State job that Truman has offered me, but I'm going to put out this very kind of bracing final statement before I leave, uh, which will shock both sides back into you know what he sees as a more sensible course. The problem is that he thinks that he, the Secretary of State job won't be announced until after uh, all sides in China have had a chance to react. Instead, it's announced, it's leaked early, and before the final statement can really have its effect, they learn that he has a new job and everyone kind of shuts up. Sure. This this experience has a lot of parallels and, as you're right, leads leads into his formulation of the Marshall Clan. Could you talk a little bit about, about how his time in China influenced how he thought about what uh, the U.S. could do to prop up democracy and liberal governments in the rest of the world? Yeah, it was a really striking realization as I was going through this. But you kind of look at these as distinct periods in history as you if you kind of study them on their own. But as you as you try to kind of go through these months looking over Marshall's shoulder in a sense, you see that he went from this incre- this incredibly intense 13 months where he's in China trying to think not just about how to broker these agreements, but also what it's going to take for a society to be strong enough to resist the forces of revolution and civil war, what it's going to take for a different kind of government to resist the force of a, of a, of a communist rebellion. And he starts to focus a lot on Things like, do people have enough food? Do people have jobs? Um, is there kind of a prospect for an opposition to be part of a government, even if it's not a communist opposition? And as, as you walk through these months with Marshall, you see that he goes from these 13 months in China immediately into the Secretary of State job. He takes off one week uh, flying back over the Pacific, but then is back in Washington, suddenly looking at a world where uh, Soviet power seems to be on the march where there's this kind of communist menace everywhere and uh, non-communist societies seem to be in disarray where people are starving, there's not enough, you know, inflation is surging out of control, governments seem really um, on the verge of collapse. And as he starts to, with other members of the State Department, with the, the new policy planning staff that he creates and uh, with George Kennan at its head, he starts to put together this plan for Europe that he would announce at Harvard in June 1947 as and it would become known as the Marshall Plan. And that was really about the realization that addressing the problems of economics and this kind of humanitarian issues needed to be at the center of American foreign policy, that really the first thing we had to do um, in order to secure democratic allies or non-communist allies, secure American interests, was to address those problems. And that's really something that he starts to think about in China. And a lot of the language that he would use in talking about the Cold War more broadly and problems in Western Europe is really uh, the same language he's using in China a few months earlier. So the, the 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 intellectual insights that become the Marshall Plan really grow out of the strategic insights, really grow out of his time in China. The flip side of this is that he becomes very focused on the willingness of partner leaders and governments to do what we think is necessary in order to make that assistance work. So, you know, he, he says again and again in formulating the Marshall Plan, um, the, the Europeans really have to take the lead. You know, we can support them, but the key steps have to be taken by our partners. Sure. And that is something that he thought was, uh, he, he saw that willingness in the case of Western Europe and did not in the case of China, which really um, helps explain his reticence to commit more there. 
Sure. Um, you know, there's a there's an interesting connection, which is sort of neither here nor there. But another one of the interesting uh, beats in the, the post-World War II career of Marshall is almost foiling America's support of Israel. And, uh, you know, Truman was for it, but Marshall actually threatened to resign, uh, saying that and this would have had he followed through this, this may have ended up changing Truman's mind. And, um, you know, no, no documentation here. But my sense is that seeing a civil war tear apart a country in the way that it did with China may have influenced his his views on that. This is always a little wrinkle of history that confused me, but your book helped me make sense of it. It's it's an interesting question. I, I don't I don't no. know I don't know the answer, but it but he does um, become kind of skeptical of uh, of the the ability of an American military intervention to um, solve someone else's civil war, which is a problem that we would face again and again throughout the Cold War. But sure. um, this kind of moment in China is really the 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 first confrontation with it. So let's come to Barack Obama. Uh, your former boss. So he uh, seems to have a lot of overlaps in, in mentality when it comes to Marshall. You mentioned that uh, Niebuhr was actually a big fan of Marshall, and yeah. and, and Obama famously uh, said that a lot of his worldview came from came from Niebuhr and the the realization that power is important and fighting fighting needs to happen every once in a while, but is but is still something that should be avoided almost at all costs. Um, so if you could kind of compare and contrast how both of these two these two leaders thought about the use of a American power probably most um, instructively um, when it came to the the Syria question. Yeah, I mean, so so I think what what you get from both of them, and Marshall, um, what it, what is so interesting about Marshall is that he is seen in some ways as this kind of embodiment of a heroic American leadership in this period. You know, he was obviously the kind of this key figure in World War II. Um, he really argued for a strong American international role in the in the post World War II years when we were kind of creating the structures of. Of American foreign policy that lasted through the Cold War um, and and to the present, you know, the creation of NATO and uh, our kind of alliance structures, you know, all of that was being forged by by Marshall and people around him in this period. So he, on the one hand, saw what American power, uh, broadly defined, could accomplish, but he also recognized that you needed to be very smart about where you applied it; that you couldn't apply power everywhere or try to solve every problem because you would end up just wasting resources and not sure. solving any of them. You need to be very, very selective about about where you applied it. This really grows out of his experience as a military figure during World War II, where he was facing this this problem of, of trying to run a gigantic global war where there were kind of endless demands for resources. There were kind of all kinds of places where you could have sent American troops or sent uh, American aid to, to partners fighting the Germans or Japanese. But you had to really pick and choose your battles. So it, it, it became, uh, when applied to American foreign policy or grand strategy more broadly, a, a really kind of a case by case principle, a pragmatism, a recognition that power could do a lot and military power could do a lot, economic assistance could do a lot, but that if you weren't really selective about it, if you applied it too broadly and did not pay really careful attention to what conditions would make, make that investment work, then you would end up uh, doing more harm than good. Do you think the process of researching and writing a book like this um, would make you a better uh, policy professional in the future? How, how do you think the, the process of doing bureaucratic history like this influences you personally on these sorts of questions? One, one thing that I, that I wanted to do and that I hope I have done with the book is you know, remind people who are studying or, or doing foreign policy now that very mythologized figures like Marshall and Atchison and Truman and others around him – um, you know, failed to do things as well. That there, there was is not this kind of story of them going from success to success, but a much more complicated story in this sure. period. And then, you know, the other going back to your earlier question about narrative history, 
Um, I think a lot of what, what is often lost in our retelling of history is the kind of trade-offs and choices that decision makers faced at the time, the limitations they faced at the time. So it's easy to kind of go back and talk about counterfactuals, but you really need to go kind of inhabit those moments and think about what exactly the choices at hand were and what they knew and what they didn't know, what they should have known but didn't know or what they couldn't have known at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that 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 is often lost in the retelling, but that's much more... Um, I think, kind of instructive when it comes to facing problems as a decision maker or analyst now. Sure. Do you have any advice out there for other non-PhDs looking to take on a project of this of this size and scale, both from a research perspective, a funding perspective, a topic selection perspective? What would you what would you have told yourself five years ago? That's a, that's a really interesting question. You know, one thing that's really striking when you do a book is you just have to really believe in 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 the project and really be interested in the story there are years where it's just kind of this solitary labor without um you know much sense of where it's going where you can feel like you're a little little bit lost in the wilderness sure but if you believe in the ultimate you know value of the project or kind of uh you know of the story really you know ultimately that's that's what it's about uh you're able to get through it if not i think i would have kind of you know Turn it into a magazine uh, piece. And yeah, or, 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 or who knows, or just kind of, uh, you know, gone and opened a coffee shop or something and given up on the whole enterprise. But, um, uh, so, so, you know, so that that is something that I was lucky. I was lucky to have something that did hold me through that period. There's a lot in archives, even archives that seem uh, like they're really well plowed. Um, so there are, you know, places where you will not be the first person to go through something, but that does not mean that every important detail or interesting detail is mined from that archive. The um, thing that I found most useful was going to, you know, not necessarily the official documents or the main characters, but the less important figures who are not names known to history for the most part, but who were present for a lot of the key uh, episodes in Marshall's China mission and can kind of tell the story in, you know, a richer way in a fuller way. So it's the kind of assistants and or reporters and, and young officers who are around Marshall and who are writing, you know, in diaries or writing letters to their wife. There's one amazing um, uh, young diplomat named John Melby in this story who uh, is having an affair at the time with a woman named Lillian Hellman, who's of this very uh, prominent left-wing uh, screenwriter and, and playwright. Melby's writing her these amazing letters almost every day where he's talking about, you know, Marshall's mood. You know, Marshall came, Marshall came, here's what happened in the meeting, but that's, you know, kind of in the official record. Here's what Marshall said when he, you know, walked into the hallway afterwards. Here's what the gossip was at the party. Here's what the, you know, communists were saying when we were, you know, drinking together. Sure. Um, and so going in and looking not just at the kind of, you know, main main characters or famous figures, but going to those kind of uh, less well-known secondary characters and, and using them to really add, add richness to the story that you don't get from the official record um, proved very, very valuable. So aside from the uh, Marshall Guide to running a Fortune uh, 500 company, any other uh, topics that from this from this period that you think uh, you found and, and, and need addressing by someone at some point? I mean, there there is there's amazing work done on this period in Chinese history, this period in U.S. Chinese relations. You know, I I wanted to tell a story about one character and and really tell the story from Marshall's perspective and sure. talk about the policy debates. I think there's a lot more work to kind of fill out the comprehensive picture. You know, this is not a story of uh, the Soviet side of this. It's not a story of the communist side of this. And there's a lot of archival work that, you know, someday will be done when everything is open that will really full out, fill out the full history. And I, you know, look forward to reading all that. Awesome. Dan, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Thanks so much. My pleasure.
China Econ Talk is edited by Jason McRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. For other great shows on contemporary China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, Ta for Ta, and of course, the Seneca Podcast. Until next week. Yeah, 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 yeah